So we're in the eighth week of a nine-week sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I hope that what people realize at this point is that this is a remarkable letter. Not only does it have some of the most inspiring language of the New Testament, but it's helpful in particular because it was written to a church of Gentiles who were new to the Bible. The church of Ephesus was in a major Roman city, and the vast majority of people in this church had, until very recently, been pagan, which means they didn't have any background in the Bible, and Paul has to spend a lot of time in this letter taking things back to the fundamentals, explaining to these pagans how the God of the Bible is different than the gods that they used to worship. The God who raised Jesus Christ is different from Zeus and Apollo and Poseidon and all the other Greek and Roman gods. Now, a couple of points about this. Number one, this was not an academic issue because there were things that were permitted and even encouraged under the Greek gods that were not permitted under the biblical God. So these former pagans are not just learning new things, they're actually having to dramatically change their behavior. And secondly, and this is where I think it can really be helpful to us, is that we are finding ourselves in a culture that looks more and more like ancient Rome. Every year, fewer and fewer people identify as Christian, and even people who do identify as Christian have less knowledge about the Bible than Christians in our culture used to have, which means even for Christians today, they don't always fully understand how the Christian God is distinctive. And so I think that these next two sermons will be of special interest to us. First, because I hope that they will help us to understand what it means to be a Christian in a society of many faiths and increasingly of no faith at all. And secondly, because today we're going to be talking about the S word, sex. And it turns out that Christian sexual ethics is one of the greatest gifts the church has ever given to the world. Christian sexual ethics is among the things we should be most proud of, and yet it's the thing I think that's often most misunderstood. There's this misconception that says that Christians are basically joy killers, that Christians want to take all the fun out of life because Christians want to restrict people's sexual expression. If you believe this, my hope is that the next two Sundays will change your mind, and what I hope you will see is that the church has made human sexuality more egalitarian and more loving and safer and more grounded in spirituality than any other belief system in history. So this is what we're going to do, and again, we're following Paul's letter chronologically. Today, we're going to look at some fundamentals about how the church's teaching differed from the culture of ancient Rome. And then next week, we're going to look specifically at Paul's statements about marriage and how his teachings were, in the view of, I think, a lot of scholars, very liberating for women. Our reading today is from the fifth chapter of Ephesians, verses 3 through 13. Let us listen to the words of God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food that it will nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven. Amen. So this is a powerful reading. It's it's an intense reading, but there is such hope here, and I'm going to talk about that hope in a few minutes. I want to make three points today. Number one, what were Roman sexual ethics? Number two, how did the church challenge those ethics? And number three, what does it mean when Paul says that God turns darkness into light? So first... What exactly did the Romans believe about sex? Remember, Paul says to the Ephesians, you are not to have even a hint of sexual immorality, nor are you to be greedy. Same sentence. It almost seems like those two things went hand in hand, sexual immorality and greed. And in Rome, indeed, they did. Because in ancient Rome, two of the most pervasive and yet awful realities were prostitution and child sexual abuse. Both were totally acceptable parts of Roman culture, and yet they were devastating to everyone involved in them. There has been a lot of research into this topic. One of the books I wanted to mention this morning, in case people are curious as to where I'm getting some of this information, there's a new book out by a scholar named Kyle Harper. It's called From Shame to Sin. It's a very eye-opening look at the way the church challenged the sexual ethics of the ancient world. He makes a couple of points that are relevant to this reading. Number one, in ancient Rome, prostitution was absolutely rampant. There were brothels everywhere. In just the city of Rome, there were 45 public brothels. These were not hidden. They were acceptable parts of daily life. The women who worked in these brothels were mostly slaves. The owners of these slaves would make money by sending uh, the slaves into the brothels to work. And, of course, there were also women who had uh, been abandoned as children, The Romans, you may have heard, had this practice called exposure. We're going to be talking next week a little bit about the story of Oedipus Rex. Do you remember Oedipus' parents leave him on a hillside to die? Well, that's the practice of exposure. It was acceptable in the ancient world. If you had a child, you did not want to leave that child out in the open to die. But what would often happen is that slave traders would find these children and they would raise them to be prostitutes. And that points to the second part of Roman culture that the church objected to, which was pederasty. And that, again, was utterly ordinary in the ancient world. There are uh, existing examples of Roman art. You can find these in museums that are frankly difficult to look at because they glamorize what we would call child rape. There are sculptures and paintings and carvings that show men openly abusing children. This was done often to slaves who had no ability to protest, and I think that this helps us answer the most obvious question that I imagine is in all of our minds right now. Why? 
How could otherwise civilized people do this to other people, especially to children? The most straightforward answer is that Romans didn't regard slaves as people. They regarded them as property. This goes all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a famous treatise in which he said that slaves were inherently inferior to Greeks. He said slaves were born to be slaves. By nature, they were inferior, and therefore it was completely acceptable to dehumanize them in any way a Greek citizen saw fit. And of course, the Romans then adopted that, those values. In this view of the world, slaves had but one value, profit. And Kyle Harper in his books gives evidence of the brutal conditions that slaves worked under in the brothels. Here's a direct quote from his book. The commodification of sex was carried out with all the ruthless efficiency of an industrial operation. The unfree body bearing the pressures of insatiable market demand in the brothel, the prostitute's body became little by little like a corpse. It all started with objectification. It all started with this idea that slaves were not really people. And this is why the church was different. Because the church said something that was so radical and so countercultural that it, it literally never would have even entered the mind of a pagan that slaves had equal status in God's eyes. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul makes a statement that when you understand the ancient context becomes literally one of the most radical things that has ever been put on paper. Paul said, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. In Christ there is neither slave nor free, which means if you are a slave, you are of equal value and dignity as the person who owns you and abuses you. And more than this, you are so beloved in the eyes of God that he sent his son to die the slave's death for you because that's what crucifixion was. It was the way slaves died. That's how much God cares about you. This is our inheritance, people. There has simply never been a movement like this in history, and it explains why the early church appealed to slaves, why there were so many slaves who became Christians. Of course, it also explains a lot of criticism of the church, even in later years, and I'm referring now to Frederick Nietzsche. If anyone uh, has read Frederick Nietzsche, the sort of the grandfather of a lot of modern existential thought, he hated the church because he viewed, he agreed with Aristotle. He thought slaves were inherently inferior. He called Christianity, in his words, a slave religion, which I have to tell you is a moniker that I wear with pride. Christianity is a slave religion, and it's something that we should be proud of because it's a pretty good thing to be on the side of those who see the inherent goodness in every human being. And so what we need to understand is that Christian sexual ethics begins with this one radical insight, objectification of a human being is always wrong. Because if Genesis is true and all people were created in the image of God, then it is always wrong to see a human being as less than human. It is always wrong to treat someone like a product to be bought and sold. It is always wrong to exploit children. And wherever in history the church has not done this, and there certainly have been those times, it has participated in what Paul calls darkness. Because that's where Paul goes next. He doesn't mince words. 
He is writing to these people who have been pagan, who undoubtedly had participated in the Roman sexual economy, and he tells them this, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You see, Paul is not being a killjoy. Paul is telling people to stop the abuse. And he doesn't stop there. It's not enough to simply stop participating in evil. Paul says you have to take the next step. You have to shine a light in the darkness. You have to tell other people the difference between right and wrong. Here's what he says next. Live as children of light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And so not only are these Christians called to stop objectifying people in their own lives, they're called to stop, uh, to shine a light in the darkness by not being afraid to call evil, evil. And I think this has enormous implications for us in our own time because it is not an exaggeration to say that we have our own powerful sexual economy. And it's frankly a lot like the one in Rome. And I don't think I'm saying anything that would surprise anyone in this room with the internet Pornography is now in every single person's home and in every single person's pocket when they carry around their phones. And of course, the message of modern pornography is that bodies are products to be bought and sold and people are not children of God. They are objects to be used for profit and then disposed of. The statistics are grim. Most kids are exposed to porn by the age of 13, most of them. And they have begun doing uh, questioning kids about their attitudes towards sex, and I think this is a dramatic and very serious um, result. Apparently, the majority of kids now say they believe pornography is a realistic depiction of the way sex is supposed to be. And what that means is that objectification and exploitation have been totally normalized. And that means we're right back in ancient Rome. And Paul is speaking directly to us. And I think he's saying two things. Number one, as Christians, first, we need to stop participating in this destructive economy because there's no such thing as harmless pornography. Porn harms both the people who produce it and the people who use it. Porn goes against the fundamental truth of the gospel, which is that God loves people so much that he literally died for them. And number two, we are called to shine a light in the darkness. We are called to simply tell the truth. And if anything that I'm saying now you find to not be the truth, I encourage you to come talk to me, and I would like to share research with you because there's a lot of it right now. There's a lot of great work being done to combat the effects of pornography in our society. And I'll just mention one today. There are many, many groups, but one that I have found useful is a group called Fight the New Drug. And the, the basic insight of this name is that pornography is a drug in its effects on people and on society. And the reason I think this particular group is powerful is that it shares testimonies of so many people who used to be involved in this destructive sexual economy and have changed. Porn actors and actresses who have escaped from this life and now share their stories in order to educate people about the truth of what this economy actually does to people. And so what they are doing is exactly what Paul says at the end of this reading. He says something amazing here, and it's just it's a little sentence, and yet it contains within it the most profound truth. Listen to this. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Paul is saying that light transforms darkness into itself, meaning there is nothing that Christ cannot heal, 
There is nothing Christ cannot forgive, and the darkness that people hide because they're ashamed of it, that very darkness can be transformed into a light that goes back into the very darkness it used to be and illuminates it. This is what the testimony Testimonies of groups like Fight the New Drug do. They show that darkness is being changed into light all the time. There are many inspiring stories uh, on this particular group's website. I want to end with just one that I think shows how God can turn darkness into light. There is a woman named um, Brittany De La Mora. She was a porn actress for seven years, performed in hundreds of scenes, and by the standards of that industry was wildly successful, and yet the entire time she was hooked on drugs She says that she had to use the drugs in order to get through these scenes because they were so degrading. Her turning point was the night she attempted suicide. She was in a bathtub with a pair of scissors about to cut her wrists, and she heard a voice telling her that he loved her. God's light shined into her darkness. And what happened then is that she became a light. Of course, it didn't happen overnight. It took years. But she eventually left that economy. She became a Christian, and now she and her husband have a ministry that is dedicated to helping other people who were in the same kind of darkness that she was. And if you listen to her, it is just amazing to see what God has done. She is so full of life. She, is, she seems so free of shame. She has so much love to share. She is this warm, powerful presence. In short, she is a light. That is what God can do. And that is the treasure that we have in this history of empowering Christian sexual ethics. Now, next week, we're going to talk more, and we're going uh, to specifically look at marriage. But the point I think I'd like you to take home today is this basic point that Christ doesn't want our lives to be boring. That's not why Christ came to earth, to simply take all the joy out of people's lives. He came to earth to fill people with his light. And that means love and freedom and joy instead of darkness and shame. You see, evil cannot deal with light. When you shine light into darkness, evil goes scurrying for the shadows like a rat. Because there is nothing that God's love cannot overcome. Let's end in prayer. God, we ask you today for the courage to let your light shine into the dark corners of our own lives, knowing that your desire for us is love and freedom and joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.